have a crack. He is, you know. Oh, and they! Brilliant! The run from Giggs! Sensational goal from Ryan Giggs! Still John Barnes, Collymore closing in! Welcome to the 90s Football Hall of Fame show, a podcast brought to you by thefootballfaithful.com. I'm Steve McGovern, and I'll be the captain for this episode. I'm joined by first-team regular Peter Henry. How's it going, Peter? Evening, lads. And we're also joined by our new box-to-box midfielder, Stephen Green. Stephen, how's it going? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm, I think I'm a bit too old to do the box-to-box role these days, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah, you could be our, our very own, like, Stevie G, but, like, late, later <laughs> years, Stevie G, you know, pl- maybe playing... A more reserved, deeper role. I'll just, just hang back a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like no one's actually quite sure what you're, you're doing here. Like, <laughs> But anyway, this week, just like every other week, we induct a new member into the 90s Football Hall of Fame. And this week's inductee is the late Ugo Ekiog, the centre-back who made over 300 appearances for Aston Villa in the 90s going into the year 2000. Stevie, I might as well ask you from the top, actually, how long have you been a Villa fan? Since I was... Ooh, about, since about 1993, so it's a good few years now. My first game, actually, was um, the Coca-Cola Cup semi-final against Tranmere in 1994. Oh, I'm, so, I want to hear about this because we actually talked about it uh, on the episode we did about Dalian Atkinson, and yeah. it just sounded absolutely mental. Yeah, it really was. I think I, as a fan, I peaked way too soon. Yeah. And that was my first game. But yeah, it, it's definitely one that still sticks in the memory. There's um, highlights on YouTube of it. And obviously, like I said, we talked about it in our Daily Atkinson episode. You know, just unbelievable and worth kind of uh, going back to, to look at that. But in terms of Ugo Ekiak, what's kind of what comes to mind when you think of him? What's the first thing that comes into your head? Well, for me, he was obviously a sort of big part of my childhood because... Uh, you know, Villa obviously at the time used to be quite good. So I associate him with some really happy memories and a sort of major part of why I love football and, and the club as much as I do. Peter, what about you? What sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I always remember him kind of coming through and that Villa team that was, you know, fighting for the league in, in the inaugural Premier League season and then won a couple of League Cups. And I think anybody who listens to the pod knows that Paul McGrath, probably my favourite player ever and you know Ugo, Ugo Ayog came into the side and played beside Paul McGrath and, and Garrett Southgate in a pretty formidable back three so um, I always remember him in that team and he was just he was an absolutely like six foot six foot two a, a pure muscle he was like the perfect centre back in, in many ways in terms of his physical attributes you know yeah totally well he he started out as a youngster at Senrab which is this kind of have either of you guys heard this Heard yeah, of this yeah. club? Yeah, there's yeah, a lot of a lot of players come through there. Yeah, just a famous kind of like hothouse of talent in London. You know, I remember reading about it when I was younger. I, I, I read a, a you know like when I was a kid, I read about it in like some magazine feature, and just seeing like guys like Ledley King, Saul Campbell, Jermaine Defoe, John Terry, like you know like some of the best players to ever play in the Premier League. And then they also had like even the ones who didn't reach that level. You got Lee Bowyer, Paul Koncheski, Muzzy Izzet, Bobby Zamora, like and just so much more. Like there's a list of it online that that anybody can look up. You know, just ridiculous. And obviously, he was one of those players that came through. Another player that came through, Peter, was uh, Scott Canham. Do you remember him? Do you know what he's famous for? 
Yeah, the the infamous Frank Lampard interview with yes. uh, Harry Redknapp, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was the there's the West Ham fan, and he's just like, this guy is not isn't going to be half of what Scott Cannon. <laughs> I'd like to ask Gary if he thinks like the publicity he's give young Frank now warrants it, because personally, I don't think he's quite good enough yet. And I also think that in the last couple of years, you've let some good midfielders go for peanuts, like Matt Holland and Scott Cannon. Well, no, they definitely wasn't good enough. They definitely, he is good enough, and he definitely will be good enough. Um, I let Scott Cannon go. He was a good kid and worked very hard. He's gone to Brentford. He can't get in Brentford's team. He's 21 years of age. I, I let him go because young Frank's 17 or 18 and he's miles in front of him. That ain't really true. That is true. You know, that's my opinion, and that's what I get paid to... I get paid to make judgments on players. And, uh, yeah, we all know how that turned out. But uh, after just uh, two games, he went to West Brom, and then just after two games of uh, senior football there, Big Ron brought the 18-year-old to Villa for £40,000, and that turned out to be a pretty good deal. And uh, he eventually developed, as you said, Peter, a partnership with with Paul McGrath. Is is that um, maybe the best deal that Villa have ever done, Stevie? I think it's certainly up there, yeah. He sort of arrived just before I really knew anything about football. And from what I've gathered, from what I've heard, is that his his sort of debut was a bit of a disaster. And uh, people were sort of scratching their heads about why we'd actually brought this kid over from, from that lot down the road. But he sort of gradually found his footing. And, you know, I think when he arrived, you know, like you said, um, Paul McGrath was the guy at the back and he was there with Derek Mountfield and then Sean Teal came in and then, you know, obviously Steve Staunton, who predominantly was a left back, but would fill in at, in the middle every now and again. So he did pretty well to within sort of two, three years to become established in that team with that kind of personnel blocking his path and, and whatnot. So he's, um, I think he, he sort of adapted quite quickly and, and really showed what he could do early on. I think in that uh, that League Cup run in in '94, you know, we mentioned the Tranmere game. That went to penalties. I think he missed the penalty, didn't he? He did, yeah. In that, and then he actually didn't even play in the final. So it's kind of tough, tough going that season. Even though it was it was quite successful for Aston Villa, that final itself was that was like you know obviously you beat Man United, who ended up winning the league that year. They had beaten Villa to the title the year previously. Like, was that a big shock? Were you, were you guys kind of like going into it thinking, Jesus, there's no chance here, or? Um, I sort of remember my dad, who uh, who was a Tottenham fan, saying to me, he sort of sat me down and said, look, if they don't win today, don't be upset because Man United are, you know, obviously with this really great team and they've won the league, so they're, they're, they're the favourites. And I, at the time, I was just very ignorant to it and I didn't really know what he was saying. I was like, nah, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll, we'll, we'll win this, no problem. I think about it now and, you know, that Man United team were obviously so brilliant and so talented that, you know, for, uh, Alex Ferguson was was obviously in his pomp at that stage. You look at that Villa team, who were really exciting. We had such a good squad of players there, but were a few were maybe sort of on the wrong side of thirty and starting to creak a little bit. And and then you had these young players like Graham Fenton, who actually did start the game. And I think if if I'd have been my age then, I'd have looked at the team sheets and thought, well, we had a good run. You know this. This was fun. At least we got to the final. But to sort of win it the way they did was was actually quite impressive, I think. Yeah, it really was, Peter, wasn't it? Uh, you know, that they really stuck it to Man United that day. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, as has been pointed out, I didn't actually remember 
technically stopped United doing the treble as well. So that they definitely got revenge on United for beating them to the title the year before. And, you know, I think as Stephen was saying, you know, the previous season, that Villa team were, were really pushing United all the way, but they struggled in the league in the 93-94 season. And, you know, as he said, there was, you know, a lot of that, that team were probably, their legs were probably starting to go a little bit. So good in a way that they kind of got the trophy to, um, yeah, to reward, as reward for being a, a really, a, an excellent team for, for a few years in, in the in the early 90s. Like, and, and they were a real, like you said, second that year, struggled the next year. They were kind of all over the place, Stevie, like very topsy-turvy team. Uh, you know, the, the season after the League Cup, they didn't do so great. And then, the, you know, a year later, they won the League Cup again. So it was a bit all over the place. And obviously by the time of that 96 final, obviously Ugo Ekiak had, had really established himself in the team by then. It was a really weird time, but it, at the same time, it was very exciting because, as you said, in that season after the first League Cup win, you know, Villa uh, nearly went down and sort of survived on the final day. But in in that, there was a really exciting very brief uh, UEFA Cup run where we beat Inter Milan on penalties and uh, there was a game against Trabs on Sport, which I think they eventually beat us. But Ekiog um, was actually a key figure in the two goals that we scored in that game. And it, I think he scored one himself, actually, right at the death, but it, it, it wasn't enough. But um, he sort of came into his own when Brian Little took over because I think Little recognised that this squad was ageing and it needed a bit of an overhaul. And he, he changed the formation as well. So we, we went from a straight up 4-4-2 to having three at the back with like Steve Staunton and Alan Wright as Gary Charles as like wing backs. So he was sort of in the middle alongside Gareth Southgate and Paul McGrath, who, you know, Paul McGrath, obviously, as you've said, I don't have to tell you anything about him. He, we, we refer to him as God at Villa Park. So let's tell you a little bit about the sort of esteem we hold him in. But he... He was very much a big part of that team that obviously came fourth, won the League Cup again, came, uh, got, you know, got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. And I think Alex Ferguson also said that if there was a team that was going to break that sort of monopoly at the top, it was going to be Villa. But unfortunately, for several reasons, um, it, it just never quite made it over the line in that regard. Why, why do you think they never did? Why do you think they just never... Because obviously they did have talented players, they had good teams during the 90s, but they just never seemed to be able to kind of get above, you know, maybe be... You know, in my head, I'm thinking mid-table team, but like I said, they were all over the place during the 90s. Yeah. I think, um, well, we had a very um, cautious owner, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. Uh, Deadly Doug wouldn't... And I think it's it's a big part of why certain managers and, and a lot of fans were frustrated with him at the time, because I think you look back at sort of the latter part of Ellis's stewardship of the club is that uh, he kept the club debt free and we never got into any serious trouble, but we never had that extra step in us to get ahead. And there's there's all sorts of stories of players that Villa could have signed, like under Brian Little, apparently we were close to signing Roberto Carlos. Uh, but Doug Ellis wouldn't pay the three million that it was going to cost because he thought, well, we've got Alan Wright, so I don't really fancy this young lad from Brazil. They don't settle here and sort of thing. And probably there's probably just a series of slightly wrong decisions at wrong times. You know, we came, we sort of looked very bright in 1998 and sort of had, you know, just began the season with 14 games unbeaten and were top of the table at Christmas and then just completely capitulated in the second half of the season. 
so I think there's, you know, maybe a series of bad decisions on boardroom level, a series of maybe poor decisions on a, a managerial level, and just having not having the right combination of players at the right times to really kick on where, where it was appropriate to do so. It's a pity, though, almost, that they didn't go after it a bit more, try and maybe pump in a bit more money, because, you know, after the first couple of seasons when Villa, you would count Villa, you know, in modern-day parlance, they they were a top-four side then, you know? Even, yeah. But there was no... The thing is, back then, there was no established order yet in the Premier League. Yeah. There was Man United and another every season. You know, yeah. there was Norwich, there was Villa, there was Blackburn for a couple of seasons. And then, obviously, Arsene Wenger comes along. It becomes the top two, which morphs into top four, top six. So, you know, if Villa had a built on that position of strength in the early to mid-90s, who knows what could have happened? They made it, could have made themselves a much more established force, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's something I, I think about often, you know, the sort of butterfly effect of football and how if you'd signed this player instead of this player, how that could have affected things. And, you know, if we'd hired this manager instead of this manager and, and so on. And obviously there was a couple of European runs there, which we, we never seemed to really take full advantage of. There's a couple of really memorable nights and games, but you think with the squad that Villa did have, a sort of more sustained push towards the semi-finals, finals of the UEFA Cup, really could have been more realistic than than it actually was. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. Like they had a lot of, like you said, memorable nights, those moments, but didn't weren't able to string them together to to create maybe great teams over a long period of time. They did reach uh, the FA Cup final though again in in uh, 2000. Mm. And that was the last final at the Old Wembley. I vaguely recall watching this at the time. Stevie, is this one that got away at the time? I know David James. <laughs> yeah. David James and Error <laughs> Are kind of, I mean, that's almost like his his actual surname yeah, at this stage. Slappy birds that day, wasn't he? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'd sort of dipped out of football a little bit at that point. Um, I was, you know, I was sort of very much getting into music and girls and and whatnot. Um, and football had sort of slipped down the the list of my priorities. But I, I remember watching it, and rightly so, it is still referred to as one of the most boring FA Cup finals that there's ever been. Um, it it was not a good game. The, the, I remember the run to the final was tremendously exciting, you know, with the three, the Benita Carboni hat-trick in the quarterfinal against Leeds and then the um, penalties against Bolton in the semis. But yeah, again, just, just couldn't quite nudge it over the line when it really mattered. Because I remember that Chelsea team were, you know, they were brilliant, but I think at the same time, absolutely there for the taking. I can't imagine John Gregory having an FA Cup winner on a CV for some reason. <laughs> just can't get my head around yeah, just looking at the lineup for that game, actually, and you see, like, it's a it's a very solid like Premier League lineup, like David James and goal, Mark Delaney at fullback, Ugo Akiok, Gareth Southgate in the centre of defence, Gareth Barry playing as well, Alan Wright, George Boateng, Paul Merson, Ian Taylor, Benito Carbone as you mentioned, and Dion Dublin. Like this, oh, this absolutely, this absolutely like screams like early noughties Aston Villa for me. <laughs> but yeah, and, and Ugo Akiok was really, you know, like he was. I mean, I don't know, he, he was maybe not the heartbeat of the team, but he was definitely like he was a solid, consistent performer during all these years. Yeah, he was He was definitely a staple of the team. I remember him, as, uh, you know, you sort of think about the, what kind of player he was and there were moments when he could, when he did definitely have that vision and the foresight to sort of pick a pass and split a midfield open. But then there were also times when he was just an absolute brick wall and 
uh, sort of hoof it into Rose Ed kind of defender. And he was he was sort of very dangerous from corners as well. So if you're going forward, he could get on the end of things. So he sort of had it all, really. But obviously, he was never quite held within the same regard as someone like Gareth Southgate, who I think you'd probably say, you'd probably say was a bit more cultured. But he was all, you know, he was always one of the first names on the team sheet, definitely. It's interesting you're saying about the partnership with Southgate because I'm just thinking now it could in many ways be like the perfect centre-back partnership. You know, when you think you have a guy who's, you know, really physically dominant, who, who marks, who, who goes up against the striker, will, will win everything early and then your other centre-back will be kind of a bit more, will read the game and, and pass it out a bit. I think, you know, Hugo Egyog could play football, you know, he could play with it on the ground, no problem, but like, I think him and Southgate were a really good partnership because they they complemented each other so well, you know. So it's no wonder that they, that they yeah that they helped Villa to go on on cup runs and things like that. But you were saying about the about him in the air. It was only last night I was watching the the Atletico Leipzig game and and right at the start of it, I think it was Jimenez of Atletico. He went he went like he jumped like a salmon, just absolutely above everyone from a corner and he just knocked a couple of lads out of his way now he didn't connect with the header so it came to nothing but I was actually thinking Jesus it's so satisfying to see a goal scored when it, when a big centre back comes running in clears everything out of his way and just bursts the ball into the net with a header it's almost like a like a slam dunk in basketball when the player <laughs> just goes through the other players Yeah. watching the YouTube clips uh, today of Ugo Ayog and he is so powerful some of the goals he scored it, it's hung up in the centre of the box and he just comes through and just takes everything out of his way and rises about two feet above everyone and powers the header in it's so satisfying to watch like yeah, he was a he was a pure athlete. I think his sort of early years at Villa were were sort of coloured by um, having to sort of cover for Paul McGrath as well, because McGrath always had Sean Teal next to him, who would you know if someone did manage to get past Paul McGrath, they had this other guy there who would just clear them out. And I think Ekiog became that guy when they were in the back three alongside Southgate. So Southgate and McGrath would be your your two sort of guys who would read the game and then Ekiog would be there because he was quicker and because he was stronger to just clean it up if someone did get through the gates. Yeah, and I'm just thinking now, Peter, because you were kind of recalling that centre-back partnership with Gareth Sauke. I mean, the first podcast I did with you and the Football Faithful was the Premier League's best ever you know, centre-back partnerships. And that one didn't even get a mention, even though they did it for Villa and then rekindled it again at Middlesbrough. So it's, it's actually mad. I, I actually feel really ashamed of us for not even mentioning that in that conversation. Yeah, to be fair, I, it's not it's not one that always stuck out in my mind. But, you know, as you said, they rekindled it at Middlesbrough. And the more I think about it and I think of the profile of two players, it, it was so such a perfect combination in many ways. You know, like, you know, a lot of people would look at, say, Vidic and Ferdinand as, as the kind of yardstick. I would have kind of Ehiog as the Vidic character who who won everything and, and took the other striker out of the game, man-marked him, and then Southgate as the kind of Rio Ferdinand character that would kind of be more about reading them and playing the ball out for the back. So, yeah, I think that is the perfect attribute for, for each centre-back to have. Although I think in the modern game, you know, it, it might have changed a, a bit in terms of what's required. Obviously, they have to be... They have to build up from the back an awful lot more than than they would have done kind of in, in, in that area, you know? Yeah, you don't get too many players who spend a, a long time at one club 
become a popular figure and then they go to another and do the exact same thing and again you know he won he won a trophy at Middlesbrough as well uh, do, do you think Villa were wrong to sell him when they did uh, Stevie yeah I mean the, the most annoying thing about that was is that this was at a time when we we really should have been kicking on and the squad that we had and then we slowly lost a couple of those key components and we lost three of them to Middlesbrough so we lost Southgate, we lost Hugo, and we lost George Boateng, who together were probably a big part of the heartbeat of, of that Villa team at the time. Um, but, but you did get Juan Pablo Angel. We did, who was <laughs> probably the most gorgeous striker that the Premier League has ever seen. But not um, the most effective. But no. I, I saw a stat that he was like, he has the worst ever record for penalties in Premier League history or something like that. He's, he is, he's up there anyway. Thinking back off the top of my head, the only penalties I can remember him taking, he missed. So that makes sense. So yeah, that probably holds up. To be fair, he's the best hair I've ever seen on a human being. So he's been... <laughs> when when we had him and Milan Barros up front, it was it was like Zoolander, you know, <laughs> the good looks that were flying around the Premier League. But yeah, I mean, the thing that sort of annoyed us as fans was that all three had left the club, citing that they wanted to go and win trophies and be successful, and they went to Middlesbrough and. I say that as no dis- with no disrespect to Middlesbrough at all, but at the time we were definitely a sort of level above them. You sort of you were sort of watching it, thinking, "Well, eight million for a key player, and they've just gone to Middlesbrough. Like, what, what do they think is going to happen there?" And then obviously that all three of them win a trophy and have proved right to to have left for trophies. But yeah, it it was super annoying at the time, and the only sort of crumb of comfort that I can take from it now is that. We signed Olaf Melberg to sort of replace him, and and he he sort of went on to be a sort of very popular figure amongst fans as well for several years. Yeah, he's up there with kind of probably one of their best players in the last twenty years, I'd say. So I mean that that worked out okay, I suppose, in the end. But I mean, it, I mean, clubs who sell like three key players like that, like that's just insane to me. Just to, uh, you know, like in a in a short space of time like that, but. Um, can I just put in and just say, did anyone else see that Olaf Melberg stack on around there a few weeks ago that he made? Like, Yeah, you shared this to me, yeah. Yeah, like so the record for clearances in the Premier League, I don't know who it was this season, but some player came second. And Olaf Melberg is like, it works out that he made 17 clearances a game playing for Aston Villa. <laughs> So I don't know if that says much about Aston Villa, and I'm still not convinced it can be real because the number is actually so high. Like, I mean that that doesn't surprise me at all. For, I mean, during his time at Villa, he was um, the only sort of player who consistently won an award with the the best beard trophy. But just after you know, just after that period when Hugo and Gareth uh, Southgate left, we 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 were terrible for a, a few years again, and. Uh, you know, Graham Taylor came back and we, we almost got relegated. And then we had a few strange seasons under David O'Leary. And it, it was sort of that dismantling of Villa potentially being a force within the Premier League. And, you know, you, you could almost look at Ekiog leaving as where the levee broke. And you can see the high watermark and where the, ra- the waves just started rolling back because we never replaced these players properly. And, you know, I love Olaf Melberg and, but he, you know, you look at the, the records of the two players and you have to put Hugo Ekiog at the top because he came away with two winner's medals and, and finished higher in the league on a more consistent basis. And that sort of goes, but that sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about not 
getting the right people in at the right times and not spending the money when it should have been spent and you know it's uh it is what it is afraid i'm afraid yeah apparently as well there was like when when he was sold to villa from west brom there was a 50 percent sell-on clause in the contract so i'm just kind of like how could it even be worth it selling him yeah <laughs> that rate <laughs> you're, you're not even taking home half the fee so it doesn't even make sense to me but in terms of his his england career you know he only uh, won four caps scored one goal maybe he was one of those players who was quite good but just not good enough for the very top or or for the international arena i mean peter th- this was kind of like a golden era for english center backs you have you know rio ferdinand saul campbell jamie Carragher. so i mean it's hard to see him kind of get in there ahead of any of them yeah, I'm not having Jamie Carragher in any in, 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 <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but he was still behind them on the, in the pecking order. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I take your point though. <laughs> I, I no, but I think the interesting um, part about that Steve, is that he actually made his debut for England before Euro '96. I think in a friendly against China, so he was competing against the Adams and kind of that era of of centre back. And then, you know, he, he was competing against the Rio Ferdinands, etc. I think he was kind of unlucky. Like, you look at, like, there was Martin Keown, like, getting caps for about the best part of a decade. A very, very limited player. I don't know if it's kind of a bit of bias towards some players that were maybe playing at, at kind of Man United Arsenal. Although, you know, Southgate was a regular in England set up as well. So, yeah, I think a victim of, of maybe not quite, being able to compete with some of the excellent centre-backs that were around through, he kind of was through the 90s and the early noughties, kind of bridging two eras. But then I think maybe just a little bit unlucky because I think in terms of a domineering centre-back, there weren't really much better than him for, for a good stretch of time in the Premier League. Um, he did struggle with injuries quite a bit. And then I think, which is kind of crazy about his four England caps, is the first one was in 1995 and he had a couple of more appearances after that. But then he didn't play for England for years. And then in 2001, after he went to Middlesbrough, Sven Goran Eriksson uh, called him back up, which is crazy to have, you know, five, six year gap in between England caps. And that's when he scored his goal in a friendly against Spain. So um, it just shows that even if he wasn't necessarily a regular, I'd like to see how many squads he in he was in. I have a feeling he was probably in and around the squad a bit more than he, you know, than in terms of the caps he had. But uh, to be an England an England manager is thinking over such a a long period of time is is also a testament to his quality. You know, I mean, it's unfortunate really that he didn't kind of get more out of his England career. But I mean, I'm thinking of of players today and you know, the kind of player he was back then. And, and you see players like Nathan Ake go for 40 million. Harry Maguire is going for 80 million, you know, last year. Stevie, would you say someone like him would be, you know, well sought after in the Premier League today? Probably not by the sort of, you know, like top level clubs. But he, you know, but then saying that, you know, Harry Maguire definitely not worth 80 million pounds. Nathan Ake, as much as I do like him as a player, also not worth 40 million. So, you think Villa paid twenty, you know, possibly twenty-six million for Tyrone Mings, who is also just breaking into the England team now. He'd probably command at somewhere between a fee of between twenty, thirty million. And in the current market, you'd probably have to say that's fair enough, really. Yeah, I, I, I dis, I disagree. You know, I reckon he'd actually go for massive money at the start of his career because whether that's the right thing or not is a different art, a different discussion, but. 
when he came into the Villa team and he made his England debut, made his England debut quite young, he was seen as a real rising star. And that's when, you know, in the modern day, you'd be linked with an 80 million move to Chelsea or Man United, you know. Whether it's the right thing in the long term is a completely different discussion. But we all know how hyped young English players and how they can at times go for massive money. And two or three years later, it, it can look quite foolish when you consider like Ben Chilwell, 80 million, things like that. I think when, when Ayog hit the, came on the scene first, he could have easily got a big, big transfer like. Yeah, when you consider in in 93, he actually was um, the captain of uh, the England under-21s and he was the first actually black player to ever captain any England team. So he was obviously highly rated when he was younger. So I I think that might have had, you know, if if he was around today in the same circumstances, he probably would be highly sought after and might go for a big fee. But, um, you know, who knows? Sadly, he passed away in 2017 after suffering a cardiac arrest while at Tottenham Hotspur's training ground. And uh, Peter, it's never not shocking when a former footballer dies at, at such a young age. I think he was only 44 at the time. Yeah, life just doesn't doesn't make sense at times. Someone who was was young, uh, had, well, young in, in relative terms, had healthy lifestyle. You know, apparently, like Brian Robson said, he was a fitness fanatic. Yeah, no, like, like lots lots to live for. You know, it's yeah, it's it's just very hard to get your your head around. I, I read an interview last night that his brother did with with the athletic and he was saying he was absolutely loving life as a as a coach you know as spurs under 23 under 21 it's now under uh, 23 coach they were at their funerals their sorry their father's funeral in nigeria and ehiog was staying up all night you know watching clips of of what was going on back at training and stuff and his brother's a physiotherapist has a lot of friends in in the medical profession he actually knows the guy who who um, was on the scene and he said, like, listen, you know, they were all looking for answers after it happened. But they said, you know, they were at Spurs training ground. There was a defibrillator there. Like he couldn't have got better care, basically, than what he got. It was just an absolute, an absolute tragedy, you know, you know, left behind a, a wife and, and a young kid. And yeah, just, just so sad. And the tributes that come in for him, by all accounts, he, he was, yeah, no one really had a bad word to say about him, said he was a, he was a really, yeah. Uh, a really nice man and, and an intelligent, driven fella as well. So, um, yeah, just absolutely shocking. His uh, last tweet, I think, says a lot about him. He wrote, gave a homeless girl £10 last night in Dalston. She didn't ask or beg. Random impulsive act from me. Not going to lie, felt good. Uh, which I think says it all about him, Stevie. You know, I, I obviously wouldn't know a lot about him personally, but I mean... Literally everyone and those in those tributes that, that Peter mentioned, like literally everyone, the first thing they mentioned is that he was a great guy, just dead sound. And that just kind of makes it all the more sad, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I was absolutely heartbroken when, when I heard the news and, you know, not ashamed to admit I got a bit emotional about it. But, you know, uh, when someone goes that young, just sort of out of the blue, it's um, it's quite the shock. But I wrote a piece sort of about him and, and Daley Atkinson and Graham Taylor because they all sort of passed away within a few months of each other. And one of the things that I noticed and that I wrote in it was that he was a, a, a man who was sort of disliked by absolutely nobody. And uh, you, know, you never heard a bad word said about him. And I don't think I ever did hear a bad word said about him. And obviously he was, he, he touched the game in, in a big way and still sort of lives on with fans today. And, um, obviously had a really sort of bright career as a coach or, or possibly even a manager ahead of him. And it's just a shame that he, we never got to see that and he never got to, to live it. 
but yeah, it it was it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I remember when we were researching for the Dalian Atkinson episode that we did, and one of the videos that came up on YouTube was Ugo Ekiog, you know, paying tribute to Dalian Atkinson, and I was like, oh my god, Ugo Ekiog passed away himself like only a year later, and that was just mad, like it's just you know crazy, but. I suppose to, we'll finish on two bits. Uh, first of all, uh, Peter, you want to talk about his coaching because you mentioned it briefly there. He, you know, he seemed very dedicated to it. He really wanted to focus on the kind of technical side of the game and building up people's ability. And he had a great attitude towards it as well. Yeah, well, I, I remember Henry Winter talking about how he was a, re- a real dip deep thinker and had a lot of ideas about how England needed to improve their coaching to produce you know, better techni- better technical players coming through the system. And that's definitely one side of it. And, and, you know, he, by all accounts, he had ambitions to eventually move into senior management. But I think one thing that really stood out for me when I was, was researching for the pod was that everybody at, at Spurs talks about someone who, who, regardless of the ability of the player, treated everybody the same. And, you know, it, it's a strange job, really, for youth coaches in football because... The harsh reality is there's a very small percent of the players they're working with are actually going to, you know, make it through to be professionals. And what I had read was that a lot of people, a lot of people said Ehiog made a big effort to make sure that the players he was working with had a backup plan if football didn't work out. You know that they realised it it might not. So he really looked at it. He really looked at his job not just as a football coach. You know that other element of like these are young men and it mightn't work out for them, and I have to prepare them for life. And I think that's, you know, that's a testament to him as a character because a lot of football's all about winning. A lot of youth coaches would just want to, you know, put results that their team that their team got. But Hugo, sorry, Hugo Ehiog seemed prepared to. Uh, to go that extra mile and and take personal care of his players, you know. I suppose uh, last thing, Stevie, on a, on a you know a, a happier, upbeat note, he actually was part of a music label. Oddly enough, you don't see a lot of footballers kind of getting involved in the in the. Uh, well, I mean, you used to see footballers getting involved in music all the time when they were making terrible records in the kind of eighties <laughs> and early nineties. But uh, yeah, this is an interesting career move that he made after football. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I had sort of no idea that he'd done that while it was happening. I only sort of found out after, uh, you know, the sort of everything had happened. But we were talking about it before we started recording. And, you know, he's he's sort of one of the brains behind the 1975. And regardless of whether you like them or not, they're absolutely massive. And that's quite impressive within itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Jesus, he he had some life anyway, and and achieved a lot both on and off the pitch. And uh, I suppose Uwakiak, he's the latest entrant into the '90s football hall of fame. Up next, we've got a quiz. This quiz is brought to you by Football Index. You can get a £20 bonus when you sign up for a new account. Just use the offer code FF20. Now, this week's quiz is all about the Champions League, lads, during the 1990s, seeing as uh, we have this little Champions League mini World Cup kind of going on at the moment. The rules are very simple. I'll ask the question. You say your name to buzz in. Then you've got 10 seconds to give an answer. And the best out of five is the winner. So are we ready to go? Sure thing. Question one. In the inaugural Champions League tournament in 1992-93, a 
Marseille reached the final after topping their group, but who finished second in the group? Was it Porto, Rangers, or Club Brugge? Peter. Go ahead, Peter. Rangers. Rangers is the correct answer, Peter. Um, ah, that's what I was going to say. Ah, you see, yeah, th- yeah, don't think about it, man. Just, I have just been buzz warned. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, question two is uh, related to question one. Which English club did Rangers knock out in the second Peter. round of Peter. the competition? Oh. Go ahead, Le- Peter. Leeds United. Leeds United is the correct answer. The Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain is correct, yes. Uh, so it's 2 0, Peter, and uh, you've got a real uphill battle now, uh, Stevie. He's too quick for me. <laughs> Question three Who was the top goal scorer in that season's competition? Was it Romario, Marco Van Basten, or Alan Boxic? Steven. Go ahead. I'm going to say Alan Boxic. Peter, do you have an answer? Yeah, I have a feeling he might be right, but I'll go with I'll go with Romario. I think I think uh, Van Basten was his ankles had gone at that stage, so I'll go with Romario. The correct answer is in fact Romario, and Peter take the three 0 lead. Uh, I, I thought, yeah, Boxage Boxage was a good shout though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were actually all funnily enough. They were the top three scorers, Romario. I'm going to look a fool now because I don't have the stats up, but I'm pretty sure Romario got seven, Marco Van Basten got six, and Alan Boxic got six or five. So, yeah, they were all in the top three there. So it's all academic at this stage. 3-0 Peter, best out of five. He's already won. But uh, let's see, Stevie, if you can uh, answer this one. Blackburn Rovers finished bottom of their group in 95-96, but which teammate did Graeme Lasseau get into a fight with Peter. during their match with Spartak Moscow? I know, Peter, you've already won. I'm, le- I'm, I'm going to give this to, to Stevie, see if he can get it. Was it uh, Tim Sherwood, Colin Henry, or David Batty? It was, uh, it was David Batty, wasn't it? It was David Batty. Yeah. Unbelievable scenes. I think it was they collided, and then Graeme Lasseau just like took a swing at him. <laughs> The most mild-mannered footballer ever, Graham Lasseau, in a fist fight with one of his own teammates. It's just not something you'd ever expect to see, uh, is it? He, he was pretty. He was pretty uh, competitive on the pitch, though. I know he's very. Uh, he, he yeah, he's very kind of well-spoken and reserved off it, but he he was a real competitor, Graham Lasseau, as well. He's his dark side. Yeah, was <laughs> his teammates thought he was gay because he read the Guardian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in the nineties, you were flaming if you read the Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> apparently the Spartak Moscow manager Oleg Romansov he was he was bemused by the incident he said uh, before the match I told my players they'll be playing against 11 guys ready to fight for each other for 90 minutes not with each other so uh, right uh, last question Stevie and you could put a bit more respectability on the board uh, Dynamo Kiev reached the quarterfinals in 97-98 but who scored more goals in their campaign Sertai Revrov or Andrei Shevchenko ooh I'm going to go Rebrov because I remember he was really highly rated at the time. Do you uh, recall, Peter, who scored more goals? Got to be Sheva, doesn't it? It is Rebrov. He scored six to uh, Sheva's five. Yeah, and then he, uh, you know, Andrei Shevchenko obviously went on to have the career he had, and Rebrov went on to sit on the bench at Spurs. Get in there! Well done, he's 13. Game set and match, Owen. So that's the end of this episode. And uh, if you enjoyed uh, our show, then please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and you can check out thefootballfaithful.com for more football content. Stevie, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Stevie Green XI, so Stevie Green 11. I'm on there most days because it's my job. 
and just got nothing else to do really <laughs> excellent well uh, it was great having you on and adding to the the Steve mafia we already had Steve tudor on and so we're, we're building up a nice kind of mob of, of stevens uh on the podcast so uh thanks a million for coming on no thanks for having me it's been great and thank you peter Cheers. We'll definitely have you back, Steve. Who any anybody who who I beat in the quiz is always welcome back in the quiz. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for listening. Carboni with the corner. Goes near post and it's in the back of the net and it's Hugo Ahil who scored. And would you believe it? Who else? Yeah, he's done it before Hugo. He's done it at Villa Park an equaliser this year and last year.